Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Podcast in which we will briefly react to the Vikings trading a conditional seventh round pick for Nick Mullins because I am not dedicating my life to a seventh round conditional pick traded for Nick Mullins. I can't do it. I can't take it. I don't have the energy, folks, to discuss this at any sort of serious length. Hi, everybody. Uh, Look, the Minnesota Vikings, if you didn't hear when I was just yelling, have a backup quarterback now. And what I originally planned to do is to bring you what Kevin O'Connell said about the backup quarterback they just traded for and what he said about Sean Mannion and Kellen Mond. But after being there today and listening to O'Connell's press conference, there's a thing on this show where I try to bring you guys facts, truth, information, and insight. And that press conference from Kevin O'Connell had none of those things. Uh, he said it's still a competition. It most certainly is not. Uh, he said that you know he was happy with both Sean Mannion and Kellen Mond. That cannot remotely be the case, or you wouldn't trade for a proven quarterback or a proven backup quarterback. And, uh, you know, did not talk about which one of the two quarterbacks he was more unhappy with, even though I think it was clear from the practice reps where Mannion was still getting more reps than Kellen Mond. If you believed that there was something there with Mond, then you would have given him more practice reps today. And that's not what happened. So there's your total insight from the press conference is that there was none. Uh, so let's get into exactly uh, the nuts and bolts of this thing, and then we can move on with our lives to a lot of good fan questions. And I'm sorry if you asked a backup quarterback question, you didn't get it under the bar. And I felt bad too. There was another person that asked a fullback question about Jake Bargus and whether they should cut their backup fullback, but then they cut him just before I could answer the question. So these things will happen to us sometimes when it comes to fans only. So I'm not ignoring your question, but it's sort of no longer makes sense uh, when it comes to the backup quarterback situation. The way that I would phrase this with Nick Mullins is that he is exactly the best thing that you can get when you're in this situation. When you have put yourself in the situation of trying to go with Kellen Mond and Sean Mannion, and then you get three weeks into training camp and go, oh no. This is not working, and neither one of these players is really going to help us. What are your options to trade any pick of significance 
for a better backup quarterback, like a really a lot better backup quarterback, well, that's not a good idea. Talked about that yesterday. That's not a good idea. You don't want to be giving up any sort of real asset. Plus, any team that has a backup that they're happy with, let's say like Geno Smith or Tyrod Taylor, like why would those teams give you that guy when you might need that guy? And uh, you know that you've got nothing behind him. So every once in a while, though, there's a situation with a veteran and a young player and the young player is good. And so you say, all right, you know, go forth veteran. Uh, Even the Gardner Minshew situation. That was a weird one. We drafted someone else. Minshew wants out. We uh, are going to keep the other guy that we like. And then the Eagles end up getting a really good backup quarterback for a sixth round pick. So every once in a while, you're able to pull off that situation. But most of the time, that does not happen. Most of the time, it's like with the Vikings last year. You're picking up Sean Mannion on the last day. You're trading on the last day for Nick Mullins because that's all you can get yourself at this stage in the game without giving up a lot. And even if you were willing to give up a lot, those teams with good backups probably are not shipping them to you because they know they have a rare commodity as one of the five to six best backups. So you've got yourself a Nick Mullins. There's two ways to go with this, and and we'll explore both ways. Uh, One is to say, why didn't they address the backup quarterback before this? Now, I think the answer is, as they were going through this offseason, they had... Daniil Hunter decision, Adam Thielen decision, Harrison Smith decision, and then free agents to sign, and and then a draft class to pay, and I don't know if they quite got all of that done in time to sign the backup quarterbacks who would have been decent that were free agents. That the timing of this kind of matters, they had a lot of things to address to create any cap space whatsoever. So now it looks like, oh, they would have had enough. But at the time, would they have had enough? Uh, They messed around with some contracts. They added dead years to people, void years and so forth. So I think the answer is semi yes and semi no. Like the timing matters that maybe there wasn't an opportunity to spend $3 million on a backup quarterback at that moment because they weren't sure if they were going to need three more million to say, Bring in Indomitian Sue, an idea that seems dead, but was at least considered. Or to bring back Kyle Rudolph, which again, seems like at least got some consideration. So you wanted to keep that little bit of cap space alive if you needed to bring in one more person after an injury. So I don't know that we can completely criticize them for that unless they really thought Mondor Mannion was going to be fine. Uh, Or maybe the plan all along was... Let's just wait and see, and then we'll address it as we go along in training camp. That's part of it. And the other part of it is, all right, well, how good is is Nick Mullins? Like, Can Nick Mullins do the thing we always talk about, which is, and, and this is actually a quote from Kevin O'Connell, which I think was telling, where he said, we need somebody who could come off the bench and win a football game. Okay, now that is right. That's what you're looking for when it comes to a backup quarterback. Can you come off the bench and win a football game? Or can you start at random for two weeks and win one? Now, Nick Mullins has not done that uh, in his career. He has won five games out of 12. And so you're looking at more out of one out of three. 
And when you look inside the details of his numbers, this man throws a lot of interceptions. Uh, 22 interceptions in 670 dropbacks, 670 dropbacks is essentially one year in the NFL. So he started 17 games, a full season's worth. And if he had started 17 games, he would have thrown for 4,800 yards, which is a lot, but 26 touchdowns, 22 picks. That's a ton. And he has twice as many turnover worthy plays as he does big time throws and an 87 quarterback rating, which is not really good at all, you would essentially be having yourself a uh, a Daniel Jones. And the other thing about Nick Mullins is, and and I don't doubt that Mullins is a guy who knows the offense and everything else like that, can deliver the ball when he's got time and and so forth. I'm going to pull up a few more numbers here in just a second, but I mean, is he somebody who is giving you a lot more than Sean Mannion? Like that might be a little hard to prove. And the reason why is when you look at the team that he had in 2018 or 2020. So in 2018, Mullins starts eight games and wins three. The next year, this team goes to the Super Bowl. And then in 2020, uh, he starts eight games and goes two and six. The next year, his team, that same San Francisco team, went to the NFC championship like this 2020 and 2018 teams for the San Francisco 49ers had basically all the same players that they have now. I mean, you, you still had Debo Samuel, uh, Brandon Ayuk. I mean, George Kittle, like these guys were on the team and their defense was very good still. Um, you know, and and it's, it's going to be worse in terms of the defensive numbers when you're not scoring offensively and holding on to the ball. But the point is that he was playing on good teams and was not really winning. And then last year he plays uh, one game for Cleveland throws for 147 yards and averages 4.9 yards per attempt. Like these are not inspiring things about Nick Mullins. Like, is it better? Yeah, but is it good or is it much better? No. I mean, so here's, here's a way of looking at it. Nick Mullins, when he played in 2020 for San Francisco, when he was under pressure, which was 37% of the time, he had a PFF grade of 36 through two touchdowns and seven interceptions. I mean, you can't get any worse than that. Uh, so I, I mean, I know that the, and then uh, the same thing when he was under pressure in 2018, two touchdowns, five picks, a 42 grade, like this man cannot operate in the NFL under pressure, which kind of sounds exactly like what we've seen already from these other quarterbacks. So there is an element of yes, Nick Mullins is better, but There's also two teams that gave him away for other backup quarterbacks, including the Raiders with Jared Stidham and also the Philadelphia Eagles in 2021 were totally fine with letting him go to get Gardner Minshew. So I wouldn't feel much more confident that Mullins is a lot better than exactly what they have right now. I I think more, a little more serviceable, but there's not some huge upgrade. And that's where I have to stop talking about the backup quarterback situation because it's been like 10 minutes and there isn't much else to say that the facts remain that if the Vikings have to be without Kirk Cousins for more than about two weeks, the season is over and he has a remarkably good record of being on the field. 
So I, I don't know, uh, you know, randomness can change that, but other than randomness, you just basically have to look up toward the football gods and pray that no one else is playing except Kirk Cousins. And I don't think there's a massive second guess here. Uh, someone asked, and it's a really good question, like, shouldn't they have just drafted Malik Willis in the third round? Uh, you know, I'm not really willing to go there because I think you're doing the same thing as with Kellen Mond and Willis has had some nice highlight plays, but look at the situation with preseason. It's just grotesque football. I mean, this, this does show how bad it is with Mannion and Mond, but almost anyone can succeed under these circumstances, which are far worse than they were even like five years ago when people were playing more first and second teamers and you could throw in a backup against decent competition. Now, uh, I, I mean, Geno Smith, a halfway decent player, is just igniting the preseason. Kenny Pickett's showing a little flash and just lighting everyone up. So I I would not say, oh man, well, they really blew it. Now, had they drafted Malik Willis in the third round, I think we all would have gone, okay, well, I guess we're doing this again and we'll see if he ever becomes anything. And then we would give it patience and see if he developed and all those sorts of things. But uh, I don't think that that's a huge second guess. It's a different conversation if Kenny Pickett becomes good. And then you're going, wait, they did it with Mac Jones and they did it with Kenny Pickett where they believed that the first round talent guy wasn't good. And then they, then he was two years in a row, two different regimes, but we'll wait, we'll wait and reserve judgment on Kenny Pickett. I don't recall like really bashing them for that, but more of making note that there was one first round quarterback and history shows us if there's a guy who's taken in the first round, his odds are pretty much the same as anybody else taken in the first round of being good. So long way of saying it's good to have trades and it's been okay to talk about. And, and, and I, and I totally get why this is a thing that gets everybody worked up because you just have that worst case scenario. And also you remember that, you know, Case Keenum or Randall Cunningham or like proven backup quarterbacks have in the past uh, made this team, you know, successful. But but this was never really going to be one of those situations. So you can be happy that the position is not a total nightmare, but it's not also vastly better. All right, let's move on to some of your questions. Uh, all right, let's go to uh, Nick via email. We haven't talked about centers in a little while here on the show because there really hasn't been a center competition that we expected. So Nick via email says, with the coaches confirming a center competition, if they decide that Bradbury isn't the guy, do they try to identify a guy they like and swing a trade, or do they wait until cuts to pick up a true center off the waiver wire? Yeah, I think that with the center competition, it was like the minute that they confirmed it, Chris Reed got hurt, and then there was no time to have an actual center competition. And then Garrett Bradbury is just your guy. And I don't think that they could move on from Bradbury at this point, even if they felt like Chris Reed was somehow better at center, because... Chris Reed missed so much with this elbow issue that even if he's back by week one, and even if half the coaching staff says, no, he's better. What they would have to do now is just wait 
until midway through the season or four to six weeks into the season, evaluate what they've seen from Garrett Bradbury, and then decide, do we want to turn it over to Chris Reed when he's healthy again? I don't think anyone but Chris Reed can be this guy. Maybe Austin Schlotman, who played really well in the preseason game. He was, I don't know if I mentioned this yesterday, he was the highest graded player on the team. To Take that for what it means or what it is, but he had a good game. So maybe they'll like what they saw. But I, I think that it's in case of emergency competition, not... They are battling every day. And there was no real sign of actual competition when they said it. There was no, hey, Chris Reed's taking first team reps. He never took first team reps so far as we saw. And we saw all of the open practices during training camp. And he he never took first team reps when he was there. He was either at left guard or second team center. That means that if they really, really thought that Bradbury was so far lost that they were going to have to replace him. They would have to do it at the last second here and then try to pick somebody up that was cut by another team, which there's probably a reason why the guy's cut by another team. What I'm getting around to is if it's not Chris Reed down the road, it's probably nobody uh, unless it's, you know, maybe Austin Schlotman as, as a possibility down the road. But there has been no real competition throughout this training camp at center. And it appears that Garrett Bradbury, I mean, it's almost a deadlock at this point, is going to be your center in week one and for at least the first quarter of the season. And we'll just see if they can work around it. Um, But I don't think, and we're always looking for these options. Is there anybody you can pick up? But like, remember the Herndon. I'm going to, I'm just going to make that your thing. As we go into these last couple weeks where they're trying to acquire players. And I don't mean to be like, I feel like I've just spent this entire time wet blanketing everyone, but like, remember the Herndon like that, that you can't just pick up players at the end of training camp and then have it work out. Uh, if someone else is getting rid of a guy, there's a really good reason for it. 98% of the time, every so often there's one player who changes teams or gets cut at the end of a year and becomes something, even though there's a dozen who go to other teams and do absolutely nothing. I, I just don't think that there's going to be any options for them off the waiver wire at the end, uh, that are going to, um, you know, actually, actually matter and, and help and help them more than Garrett Bradbury would. I I think that Garrett Bradbury is going to have the struggles that he's going to have. And their task is to try to work around it and then to know what time to pull the shoot. If it's not working to not say, well, he just needed to do this or that in that last game, but four weeks in to say, Nope, it's Chris Reed time. Sorry, we're moving on. Like, I think they have to have a good compass with that. And if there's one thing that Zimmer did last year that I think was the right thing to do, it was sticking with Mason Cole when they did. And on the defensive side, though, Zimmer made that mistake, like not going to Cam Dantzler and sticking with the guy, Brashad Breeland, for too long. Like, don't make that mistake here. If it's not working, then make a change. I would be very surprised if they made a change now, though. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, from Chris via the email. Hello again from Canada. Hello. Uh, help me understand why Vikings ownership and brass have allowed, would have allowed Mike Zimmer and Kirk Cousins dysfunction to exist as long as it did. We've all come to realize how vital the coach and QB or OC and QB relationship is to a team's success. It seems somewhat irresponsible to have allowed that to fester for as long as it did with everyone knowing it, including the fans. It seems abundantly clear that the change in coach was made several years too late. Uh, aggressive for a Canadian, Chris. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But your point in 2019, this is something we'll think about for a long time. They were ready to move on. They were ready to move on from Mike Zimmer, trade him to Dallas or whatever they would have done with him if they had lost the playoff game. And I think they were ready to move on from Cousins if they had lost the playoff game to the New Orleans Saints. And they won. And they won in the most exciting and dramatic fashion. And both of them were great. Kirk Cousins' game-winning drive, tremendous, tremendous game-winning drive. His throw to Adam Thielen was gutsy. And his throw to Kyle Rudolph was perfectly accurate in the back of the end zone. He knew exactly where to put the football. And he came through clutch in that game. And on the defensive side... Mike Zimmer dialed up a defense that flustered Drew Brees for almost that entire game. And they let the Saints come back into it. But for most of that game, Drew Brees really struggled against Mike Zimmer's defense. So you could see why they talked themselves into it. Well, we won this game. Look how close we are. Mike can still do it. He could still dial up these great defenses. Kirk is good enough to win in the playoffs. And I even remember Rick Spielman saying at the podium at the combine the next year, like, yeah, I mean, Kirk really showed us that he's a playoff quarterback or, or something to that extent. And it was like, wow, one wild card weekend game is the number six seed. And we have an entirely different coach an entirely different quarterback from two weeks before that, when they lost to the Green Bay Packers at home. And that was when the tide turned toward possibly moving on from them. But if they had looked, I think, I don't focus so much on the dysfunction because I think that that has been more of the last two years than it was the first two years. The first two years, it was John Filippo, And I think Mike Zimmer got very frustrated with Filippo leaning so much into Cousins and so much into the passing game And then when everything tried to change to go more run, then it it just didn't 
you know, it didn't gel. And I think that Cousins didn't react well to it and Filippo didn't react well to it and it wasn't the right strategy. I mean, just and so forth. And then there was a lot of tension and that's when they fell apart toward the end of that season. But I don't know that Zimmer felt like it was Cousins' fault at that point. I really don't. I mean, Zimmer in 2018, I remember going into the facility kind of early one day where he was going to talk just with the beat reporters, which is a thing that seems to be of the past, but Zimmer used to do it. And honestly, it was great. It was just like five or six of us. And Mike would just, a lot of times would just talk football and and it was, it was good. Uh, And he was talking about how he was trying to encourage cousins to be a little more vocal, to lead his team and, and to feel like the team was his. I don't think that at that point, Mike Zimmer was treating Kirk Cousins as if he was enemy number one or as if he had lost him his job or anything like that. I think that he believed that it was John Filippo's offense that wasn't a good fit for Zimmer or for uh, Cousins. And then the next year, he was proven correct. I mean, Kevin Stefanski's offense, the first top 10 offense that Cousins had had in his career and the only one was Stefanski. They ran a lot. They had a ton of success running the ball, ran a lot of screens, and then hit big plays. Like, they succeeded with that offense, even if they did probably run too much. Overall, it was a success. So I don't think going into 2020 that Zimmer was looking at Kirk Cousins as if, like, this guy is driving me crazy and so forth. The start to the 2020 season, that was where you started to feel it because Zimmer's defense came apart at that point. That was the point where they could no longer afford to keep people around and they had to create cap space by extending Cousins. And that's where I think the resentment began. And then after 2020, you could see where the ownership would be like, we can't really fire this guy after a pandemic season when everything was so weird, but he should be on the hot seat. And then you have last year, the vaccination stuff that really pushed it over the edge. Then Mike couldn't hold in anymore that he just didn't have a lot of belief. But the beginning of the season also to 2020, where I think the defense was struggling and there were opportunities for cousins to go and win games, like game winning drive situations. It didn't happen. That's where you start to go, man, we paid you all this money and I lost my entire defense and you can't give us a game winning drive. That's where you started to feel the friction a bit. I know it did exist at some points in 2019 for sure, but I, so it wasn't all like happy days in 2019. That was Diggs. Uh, but even then Diggs was sort of the public enemy at that point. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it, it wasn't until the green Bay game when they fell apart that there was talk of Zimmer possibly being fired in 2019. And then in 2020, it was the beginning of the season where they go one in five. And there was also a game that they lost where I remember hearing that this was a frustration. I don't know directly for Zimmer, but for some people that they had lost this game to, to maybe go one in five and cousins after the game didn't seem upset and was like high-fiving Matt Ryan or something. And they were like, dude, do you not want us to win because you don't seem heartbroken? So, and, and that might be unfair because a lot of players after games, they sort of put it in the past, but I think it really built from there when Zimmer's defense came apart and they couldn't afford to keep the people that he had built a number one defense with before. That is a long way of saying that 
you can see how that progression would result in ownership not saying, oh, these guys aren't getting along. We need to fire Zimmer or we need to get rid of Kirk. You can see where it had to kind of go that route to get to the point that it got to. And it's a little easy to say in hindsight, well, they should have just done X, Y, or Z if these guys weren't going to get along, but they were coexisting to some extent to win that playoff game. And then after that, you could blame it on pandemic or whatever, and and also say, hey, this is this could be basically his last year of his contract. We have to play it out. Um, but yeah, no, it's a great it's a great question. And then the other question is, how much did that matter? Is the other part of it? And we're gonna find out. Like we're gonna find out how much that was supposed to matter um, th- this year. Because clearly Kevin O'Connell is handling this a lot differently than Mike Zimmer did. And so now is it going to make a difference? Is it going to result in them having a good season and a good offense and a confident Kirk with you know everyone's belief behind him? Or are we going to see some of the same things where the coach becomes frustrated at the late game stuff or the lack of aggressiveness or whatever it might be? And O'Connell's not going to come out and say it. If he won't come out and say, I'm sick and tired of watching Kellen Mond, that's why we traded for Nick Mullins, then he's not going to tell us how he feels about Cousins. But I guarantee you, the first time that they have third down and seven, and there's a throw that goes four yards, uh, that's not going to make the head coach happy no matter who it is. We're just not going to hear about it on the outside. But coaches are going to be coaches. And I think what we're seeing already is that this coaching staff is realizing the last coaching staff didn't have it all wrong, right? It's uh, it's kind of like this. Let's say that you like your friend's boyfriend or something, girlfriend, whoever, partner, and you think, man, you know, I you're always kind of bagging on that person. I, I don't really understand what your problem is. Like, they seem pretty cool to me. So then those two break up and you get together with them, like you, the, the person who was dumped. And you go out with them for three months and you go, oh, okay, well, they don't text you back and they no show on your dates and maybe they, you know, favorite some photos online that they shouldn't be like, you know what I mean? Like then you sort of see all the things that your friend was uh, complaining about from the outside. It was very easy to go. Yeah, we're going to come in here and be super positive and we're going to love up on Kirk and it's going to be the best but they haven't lost any game yet and they haven't had any letdowns yet. And if his confidence changes that, well, then that scenario doesn't exist. Maybe if you treat the other person better, um, you know, the boyfriend or girlfriend that they're willing to text you back or they're willing to show up for your dates. I guess that's what we're going to find out. So thank you for that question, Chris. And uh, Canada has a great national anthem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, this one from at Dave Whedon. 
OnlyFans question, what is your too early evaluation of Kwesi's first draft? It looks like passing on Kyle Hamilton for scene was a solid move, and it appears we could have at least three day one early season starters with these first three picks. Um, now, I know that this question was asked a little earlier in training camp and has been sitting in the file, so we've got a little more information now at this point. Uh, as far as the first draft goes, I am very much in wait and see mode. Because it is, it's concerning on a few levels that one, Lewis Seen is not with the first team. It's not a huge red flag. It's not a, this guy's a bust and hit the panic button. But I I checked this out with PFF because I, I said it the other day and I was like, wait a minute, let me make sure. So I went back and I looked at Timo Risky's study of all the positions and what the development curve is like. Like, how quickly do they get it? Uh, Offensive line takes a while. Uh, Usually two, maybe even three years before the the offensive linemen have reached their peak. Safety actually has the quickest. So you get drafted and you're in the NFL and you're starting at safety. And boom, like, there you go. That's how it's usually gone. Like, there isn't a ton of development curve for safeties, and there's no easier position walking around the National Football League than playing next to Harrison Smith. Here's how I know. Robert Blanton did it. Anthony Harris, Anderson Deho, Xavier Woods, and they all performed pretty well. I mean, that's a that's a position, and here's Cam Bynum. So I'm not ready to declare Lewis Seen a better pick than Kyle Hamilton, uh, I'm not ready to declare him any sort of bust. And maybe he plays a role with the three safety situation and he's effective. And then next year he takes over. But you know, when Cam Bynum looks like the better player by kind of a lot, uh, you certainly wonder about that. And with Andrew Booth, we've all been impressed with Andrew Booth's ability to move. And I mean, the guy is lanky and he can play the ball and he's instinctual. He's got all these things. But he's also got a nagging ankle injury now. And, you know, the way that Kevin O'Connell, and I, I want to give him credit because I started out by kind of being, you know, I don't know, snarky about his press conference today where that, I mean, if you're not going to admit that you don't like the backup quarterbacks after trading for another one, man. But, you know, he has been really straightforward about the injury situations. And when he said Andrew Booth Jr. has kind of been dealing with this, Oh, you want to talk about raising an eyebrow? It's like, wait, wait, wait. This guy had multiple surgeries, could not participate in the combine. And then throughout camp, he's got this ankle issue that crops up the basically the second time that he's out on the field that the biggest concern remains the biggest concern, which is just that he could stay healthy because I like a lot of things about his game, but he's going to have to stay healthy. And, uh, our friend of the show, Eric eager from PFF brought up like Chris cook to me that, you know, back in the day, Chris cook kind of had the same thing where he showed promise, but then was just banged up and could never be the full version of himself. So uh, wait and see on that one. They're not having to rely on Andrew Booth jr. And he should be able to get healthy, but I'm not ready to say, Oh, nailed it. Um, the same goes for right guard. I mean, the other day we saw some weakness from Ed Ingram, I don't think that they drafted Steve Hutchinson here. Uh, So that one, we're going to have to wait and see too, probably over multiple years. Similarly with Ezra Cleveland, like Ezra Cleveland has not put up great PFF numbers yet, but I think all of us are willing to give offensive linemen time to develop. And then we'll know when it's time, like with Garrett Bradbury. 
even going into last year, we're saying, let's see. And so with the right guard situation, if indeed Ingram wins that position, which now I was just trying to figure out exactly what's going on because Ingram played a lot in the game. And I don't know if that's just a rookie thing, like a rookie's going to play a lot because he needs the experience, or if maybe that doesn't mean he's as far along as as far as winning the job. But Jesse Davis also worked with the second team during joint practices. So not quite a, uh, not quite a um, purple insider mystery, but maybe they're not 1000% there. But I think that one looks the best so far. Brian Asamoah looks quite good. I've been really impressed with Brian Asamoah. He seems like he's somebody that kind of is a, a dog chasing a Frisbee a little bit sometimes where it's just like, go, 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 go. And maybe there will be times where he learns to not always be that, but he can be a missile. And I like what I see there. So I think that right now we're still waiting to see. We're waiting to see on a few other things. We're going to have to find out what Christian Watson does. We're going to have to find out what Jamison Williams does because that's the guy they really passed on um, right there is Jamison Williams. He was right there on the board. And so we're going to have to find that out over a season, two seasons, three seasons. And then Kenny Pickett, who I brought up before, that if you knew at the time that Kirk wasn't going to be the long-term option, which is kind of heavy, heavily insinuated by the USA Today piece with Quasi Adolfo Mensa, well then, you know, that's that was the one first-round talent that was left on the board. So, yeah, I think that we are in way too early mode. The early returns to me are a tad questionable but we're going to have to we're going to have to wait and see there which is which is not the answer that I love to give but I think that what they've shown us is so far Andrew Booth Jr and Ed Ingram have shown us some really good things. Lewis Seen has shown us nothing. I mean really nothing. His reactions to things are a little slow and and, and that again like don't take me the wrong way, but he just hasn't shown anything. And that one is the ultimate we're going to have to give it time because We haven't even seen the flashes that we were looking for coming into training camp. And then as far as the third round pick, there's a guy who's flashed and you like what you've seen there. And maybe that's a potential starter. So that's kind of the rundown as of right now of the rookie class where you're like, "Eh, well, you know, some, some of them could go a really good way and we're going to have to watch and, and see how that plays out. So I wish I had some like more definitive blazing take for you that it was the best draft ever, or they blew it. Uh, right now it's undecided. All right, let's go to Dan via email. He says, uh, in the past seems like corners are labeled penalty prone early on and unable to shake that reputation throughout their careers and don't get away with contact. And sometimes it goes uncalled. If you don't have that reputation, uh, well, he has committed his fair share of legitimate penalties. I always felt like that happened to Trey Waynes. Based on what we're hearing about Booth, I'm concerned about the same thing. It might happen to him if he plays early on before he refines his approach. Do you think that concern is legitimate or am I galaxy braining myself? Well, uh, maybe a little on the galaxy brain thing. So a few years ago, I did a story about pass interference and how to avoid pass interference. And the Vikings, no surprise, I guess they had a whole thing, like a whole, this is how we teach guys to not do, you know, 
pass interfere, whatever. Uh, and I talked with Jerry Gray, their defensive backs coach. He kind of took me all the way through it about all their different techniques that they try to, you know, this is how we do this. This is how we handle that play. It was, it was very cool. It was, it was a fun article to write. But one of the things that I learned from that is that young players have no idea how to avoid pass interference. No idea. Because in college, you could do whatever the heck you want. And that was Mike Zimmer's main point when I talked to him about it was like, look, they they just let you maul the guy down the field because there are no rules uh, about that until the ball is in the air. So we have to unteach whatever they were teaching in college and reteach all of our techniques, which is a lot of work when you're trying to learn how to be in the NFL. So every rookie is going to have the like he's too grabby type of reputation And then there are some guys, I mean, Bashad Breeland was one of these who just never shook that. One of the problems that Trey Waynes had, and this again comes from Zimmer, and it's the insight I will truly miss from Zimmer. I mean that, that Zimmer would explain how to watch these players. And it was very helpful at times that Trey Waynes did not get his head around on time a lot of times. Now, if you're watching close, you probably already know that, but it was interesting to hear the head coach break it down. And when you don't get your head around, even though that's not really the rule anymore, that's what referees are going to look for. If you get your head around and try to make a play on the ball, they're going to be a lot more lax about it. And that was just always an issue for Trey Waynes that he could run with anyone. He was one of the fastest players on the team. He could run foot for foot with any wide receiver. But if he had the ball coming his way, he didn't seem to have a sixth sense about when it was coming and would just like either do nothing or kind of grab at the guy and would get some penalties. I don't remember Trey Waynes penalties being awful, though. So I'm going to look it up because that's what we do here on the fans only portion of this not emergency podcast is uh, we fact check. So let's take a look and see how bad his penalties were throughout his career. Is this great? By the way, is this great? Like even when I first got into sports talk radio, yeah, his penalties were not bad at all. Um, I'll, I'll give you the numbers in a second. But when I first got into sports talk radio, it was just as data and analytics and everything else was starting to become a thing. It was right around the same time PFF was beginning. Football outsiders had been around. Baseball prospectus had been around. And I remember a program director saying to me, which is like the boss in radio, like you just, you can't like talk about numbers. It's got to be about storylines and like takes. I was like, man, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that numbers tell so many interesting stories and we also get to fact check the things that we think like, man, it seems like Trey Waynes gets penalized a lot. No, he really doesn't. Um, when let's see in his career, hold on, just had this got to scroll. All right. Uh, penalties. He had four in 2019, three in 2018, four in 2017. But here's probably where this comes from, from you seven in 2016. And that was with only uh, 388 coverage snaps to get penalized seven times on 388 coverage snaps is pretty bad. But Xavier Rhodes had a legitimate problem with this. And this was why actually his PFF grades weren't good. Because even though his coverage was fantastic, he got called for penalties all the time. And so they would ding him for that. But uh, Trey Waynes, no. I mean, pretty solid when it came to avoiding penalties eventually. That's not your question. I just, like, wonder about this stuff when we make statements like that. I think it's mostly a young player thing. 
And I don't know that it's like a reputation you can't shake because usually from year to year, outside of a few guys, these go up and down. Some years, you guys has a lot. Some years, not so many. Maybe the refs know certain players are a little more grabby than others, but I wouldn't worry that. And also, you know, preseason here. I mean, preseason, they're calling everything if you've watched these games. They're not letting the corners do anything to wide receivers because they're emphasizing. So you can count on that for the first three weeks of the year, by the way, that there will be these penalties. But I, I don't think that Andrew Booth Jr. has to worry about that being his reputation um, for a long time or anything like that. I, I think that you can shake that. Uh, all right, let's see here. This uh, Jason via email. If there was an expansion draft and you were the Vikings GM, who would you protect and who would you hope gets taken so you lose their contract? Yeah, I mean, the uh, well, it, it, that's a great question. That's a super fun question. And let's hope that they never expand anymore because this, this is enough teams. Look at the backup quarterbacks we're talking about here. This is definitely enough teams. Well, let, let me look here. You know, the Vikings, as far as long-term goes, they do not have disaster long-term contracts mostly. It's more in the short term as in this year or next year. So if you were trying to look at 2023 and looking at whose contract is problematic, uh, Eric Kendrick's contract is kind of problematic. Uh, his salary cap number next year is over $11 million. That's a little tough. Um, and if he's gone, that they have you know $9 million in dead cap, um, oh no, I'm sorry. 9 million in cap savings. So Eric Hendricks is one that comes to mind. Uh, I think though, if you were trying to, oh, I guess let's see. Now, if they said that if you put someone available for this expansion draft, you don't have to worry about dead cap. Delvin cook is your guy. I mean, he is, you are letting him out there because next year, if they cut Delvin cook, they have to take on $6 million in dead cap. Like that's a, that's a lot. It's a big chunk of dead cap space. And you could just give that away. If that was the rules, that's a pretty good one. Now, it depends on how Adam Thielen plays. There's no doubt they're going to restructure this deal next year. He is scheduled to make it 2023. 20 mil on the cap with 13 mil in dead cap if they cut him. So he is locked into the Minnesota Vikings next year. Even if, I mean, the restructuring is the only thing which would probably make, uh, you know, a few more million dollars. But that... Wow. Great job by his side, because that is really something for a guy who is his age. That is a great job by his side. So those, those are the two guys mainly. Um, aside from that, there's not a lot of dead cap hit players, really. Harrison Smith, certainly another one, another guy that they're going to have to just convert base salary to bonus. But the way I'm looking at it right now, Thielen and Smith, there's, there's a good amount you can do there. But it's $11 million in dead cap to cut him, so that's another one that makes a lot of sense. Aside from that, there's really nobody else. I mean, this team in their cap hits, and of course, you know, Kirk is another part of this, but it's very top-heavy for next year. It's Cousins, Kendricks, who knows with Hunter, he's not playing on that deal next year. Cook, Thielen, and Harrison Smith, like those are the guys making up the money. Um, Delvin Tomlinson is another one. Actually, wow, Delvin Tomlinson. I didn't realize this, that if they cut him next year, no cap savings and $7.0 dead cap, he's a pretty good player and that's not that expensive. But if we're answering this question, 
it's, yeah, I think that he goes in there as well. Next year, they are scheduled to have, at this moment, without any of those changes, $327,000 in salary cap space as of this moment. That doesn't sound like a competitive rebuild to me. So, fun question, though. Fun question. So, there's quite a few players there that if there was an expansion draft... You would, uh, you would let them go. And of course, who you would protect. Uh, I'm not sure how many players you want to protect here, but your first, your first round pick, Justin Jefferson is an obvious answer. Oh, that's, you know, that's an interesting one though. Like, would you even protect someone like Harrison Phillips? Maybe. I mean, Brian O'Neill for sure. Jefferson, Derisaw, both the first round draft picks this year. After that though? After that, though, K.J. Osborne? Hmm. A little bit telling for where they're going to be at after this year. Got to win. Got to win this year. Uh, All right. One more, one more, one more. Let's see. Uh, This from at bmole3113. Loving the show, especially around the draft and now training camp. Thank you. Thank you. In your expertise, how do you feel about the relationship between Wes Phillips and the offense as a whole? I know that Kevin O'Connell will be calling plays, but how is the team responding to his guidance? And how do you feel he will be an asset out of the gate for this unit? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think that Wes Phillips has a ton of experience. And I think that he has a really great demeanor for what this team is trying to do. He's a very calm guy. Uh, and I think that he takes that similar sort of teacher approach. But this is Kevin O'Connell's offense. It just is. Like, remember George Edwards? It's Kevin O'Connell's offense. Mike Zimmer's defense. That's that's who's going to live and die here. I don't know about the relationship with Wes Phillips and the players exactly. He seems like a really knowledgeable guy. He knows this offense for sure. Learning it from McVay, being with that coaching staff, winning the Super Bowl with the Rams. Like he knows this. So I have no doubt that he can teach it and teach the details, but they're going to do things how Kevin O'Connell says they're going to do things. And so he's going to be the one that matters much more than the offensive coordinator. Not saying it doesn't matter at all, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's this this is Kevin O'Connell's offense for sure. Uh let's see. Um maybe we can fit in one more here. Maybe one more. I, I worry about people missing their questions though late. Um let's see. Oh, here's one from uh Farah Nate with uh, now that Anthony Barr is no longer on the roster, who will be wearing the green dot for the defense this year? I think that it's Eric Kendricks. But I'm not 100% sure about that. I, I don't know that we've asked uh, who's going to be doing that. Jordan Hicks is a really smart guy. My first observation about Jordan Hicks, he's a very bright guy. I don't know that Arizona had a great defense. Uh, he played a lot. I mean, over 1,000 snaps three years in a row. But my first observation was, you know, he actually reminds me a lot of Anthony Barr. Like He's a kind of a little bit soft-spoken, but very intelligent person. And somebody that's got a lot of experience. And those two, like, he's played really well in practice. Jordan Hicks has been better than I expected. Um, so I, I don't know if it's him or if it's Kendricks. I haven't gotten an answer to that. But those two might actually turn out to be pretty good. And we might be surprised and be saying, like, you know, actually that Jordan Hicks pickup was was pretty solid. So this has been a not-at-all-emergency podcast. Look forward to soon Ben Gessling of the Star Tribune We're going to record tomorrow looking into his crystal ball. And if you've been listening for a long time, you know what that means. 
always a really fun episode. So thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you soon.